Hi, everybody. This is Liam O'Donoghue, the host of East Bay Yesterday. And this is my very first collaboration with a brand new nonprofit local news site called The Oakland Side. As the name suggests, The Oakland Side is focused on covering things happening right here in the town. And so am I, just from a more historical perspective. So I'm really excited about this partnership. If you want to stay up to date with everything The Oakland Side is doing, go to oaklandside.org and sign up for their newsletter. And just to clarify what I mean by partnership, Oakland Side's news team edited this show, and they'll be hosting the online version of the story on their site. Okay, about today's episode. Since police violence is having a long overdue moment in the national spotlight right now, I wanted to look at the local history of this issue to give context to what we're seeing in the streets and on the news. So today's episode is broken up into three parts, and each segment will look at a different chapter of this painful and complex story. Before we get started, I just want to say real quick that, as many others have noted, you can't really separate the issue of police violence from other problems like poverty, underfunded schools, health disparities. The list goes on and on. And for all you new listeners, that's kind of what East Bay Yesterday is all about, telling longer, more nuanced stories that connect various threads to explain how we got to the world we're living in now. At least that's what I try to do. I've got more than 60 episodes online at eastbayyesterday.com. And if you finished today's show and you're looking for more of that context that I'm talking about, you might want to check out an episode I did a few months back called Unfair Housing. Why racism and real estate are so hard to untangle. Okay, that's enough background. Let's start the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. More than 1,500 people were in the streets, many hurling rocks and bottles at the police or anyone else, some attacking the cars of people, white or Negro, who just passed by. More than 100 police rushed to the area, sealing off eight square blocks in an effort at quarantine. The rioting subsided, then began all over again shortly before dawn. KNXT's camera car was hit by rock throwers early in the battle, then later tipped over by a mob of young men and set afire. In 1965, the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles exploded. Some called it a riot, others a rebellion. The spark was a simple traffic stop of a black man by white police officers. But tensions had been building for a long time. Some might say 400 years. Many Americans were baffled or even disgusted by what they saw. Six days and nights of burning, looting, killing. But where some saw chaos, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who were watching these events unfold on TV from Oakland, saw potential in the flames of Watts. A few months later, these two young men, students at Merritt College, started the Black Panther Party. Huey kind of had a different approach. He, he believed that they were proto-political. 
right? He believed they had not quite, that uprising had not quite evolved into a military and political force, that people hadn't organized yet. There was just people showing their rage. So when you think about when the Panthers start, first thing he was trying to do is organize that rage. That's Xavier Buck, who's pursuing a history PhD at UC Berkeley and is also the deputy director of the Dr. Huey P. Newton Foundation, an organization that's working to build a monument to the Black Panthers right here in Oakland, the birthplace of the party. But let's get back to that idea of rage that Xavier just mentioned. Why was there so much Black rage? And what inspired Huey to organize it? That's a complex question. This story holds some answers. Huey was still a child when his family moved from Louisiana to West Oakland in 1945, so his dad could work in the shipyards. Besides the job opportunity, the Newtons also wanted to escape Jim Crow laws and lynchings, which were still common in the South. Another person who moved to Oakland around the same time as the Newtons was a woman named Jessica Mitford. Jessica Mitford would later go on to become a best-selling author and investigative journalist. But during this era, she was a young civil rights activist. And she was married to one of the only lawyers at the time willing to take on police brutality cases, Robert Truehaft. When Jessica and her husband started hearing that a lot of black shipyard workers, men like Huey Newton's dad, were being roughed up and harassed by police, they decided to look into it. Jessica describes what she found in her memoir. We discovered that on Fridays, payday for most workers, police would regularly lie in wait outside the West Oakland bars that served as banks for the cashing of paychecks, arrest those emerging on charges of drunkenness, and in the privacy of prowl cars, beat them and rob them of their week's pay and route to the West Oakland police station. Some of the young black men Jessica interviewed for the investigation had to answer her questions through clenched teeth because their jaws were still broken. The Oakland Tribune wouldn't print a word about this. They were owned by the conservative Noland family, who were part of the white business elite that controlled Oakland at the time. So working with churches and unions, Jessica Mitford and her husband were able to convince Democrats in California's state assembly to send down a committee from Sacramento, the first of its kind, to look into these allegations. The committee's head investigator, Robert Powers, was a former police chief from Bakersfield, so you might expect he would have been sympathetic to the police. But there was so much evidence of OPD abuse, even murders committed by officers, that he had to admit there was, quote, some degree of truth to the charges. The outcome? Nothing, really. The committee hearings ended, and in Oakland, it was back to business as usual. The black community just didn't have enough power to challenge the police, and not much would change. Until about 17 years later, that's when the son of a black ship worker and a few of his friends decided to start a group whose original name was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Again, Xavier Buck. So when you talk about self-defense, well, that's really just Huey studying kind of the legal parameters in California, knowing what he can do, right? You can't go out and 
just shoot a police officer that's been terrorizing your community, but you can open and carry your gun and the officer can see it and you can say, I'm defending myself and I will not take any of this uh, brutality anymore, right? Those are the legal parameters in California at that time. And so you say self-defense, well, you just, it's about protecting yourself, right? If you have a, a occupying force, right? Like a military in your neighborhood, you want to fight back. You want to protect yourself. You want to protect your family and community members. The Panthers would eventually expand into all kinds of social programs, free breakfasts, health clinics, schools, you name it. But their first big priority was stopping police abuse. And the way they decided to do that was by arming themselves, piling into Bobby Seale's car, and following the police around through the streets of Oakland. What they were doing is basically just policing the police. Right. So often you see the police doing something um, outside of the boundaries of law, and yet there's no regulatory force for the police uh, now or then. You know what I mean? Today we have these cameras and they're useful to an extent, but then you don't have cameras. Right. You have rampant police brutality. This is basically just a regulatory force because the government will not step in. And what you see is that through all of these Panther programs, a lot of it has to do with government neglect. You know, these are taxpayers that pay their money, but the government never serves them. In fact, they do the exact opposite. And so the Panthers kind of step in and do the real kind of grassroots work it takes for a community to protect itself, uh, to regulate itself, and to have a government that serves itself. The Black Panther Party calls for freedom and power to determine our destiny. The Black Panther Party calls for full employment for all our people. The Black Panther Party calls for an end to the capitalistic exploitation of our community. The Black Panther Party calls for decent housing for all people. The Black Panther Party calls for an end to police brutality. That was the voice of Huey Newton. Most Americans first learned about the Panthers when photos of armed black men, quote-unquote, invading the state capitol building in Sacramento, generated national attention. But here in the Bay Area, they first grabbed headlines because of their activism in North Richmond, a mostly black community about 15 miles north of Oakland. They went there because a man named Denzel Dowell was shot by officers from the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department. Dowell was fleeing after allegedly trying to burglarize a liquor store when he was killed. But it wasn't Dowell's death alone that had people outraged. This came after, it was just weeks before, two unarmed black men had been shot in the same neighborhood in North Richmond. And, uh, you know, not only had they been shot, but they had bullet holes in their armpits, right? It that they had their hands up. What's the other one? And a black woman had been brutalized, right? And so it's just like, you got this black man that gets killed, the, the sheriff department figure out a way to kind of justify it. But the neighborhood already knows black people are getting brutalized and killed in their neighborhood all the time. North Richmond is where I bought my first house, right? It's a small community. that's less than then and now, less than 5,000 people. So you can imagine this is, it must be somewhat of a tight-knit community. People know each other. News spreads fast. So Denzel Dowell, right? Running away, gets killed. And they basically, the, police, the sheriff department says uh, it's justified. The family's not having it. When his brother has showed up on the scene, no ambulance was called. You know, nothing like that, right? And so, like a regular response. From my understanding, in North Richmond, there was also, or in Richmond, 
Uh, there was also a, a group of officers that were just known for going into black communities and, and brutalizing people, just known for that, brutalizing and killing people. So this case with Denzel Dow, because the family cannot rest with the situation at hand and because so much is already going on there, they basically decide that they have to do more about it, right? That this that they have to have some kind of change. And so, you know, they call upon all the regular community organizations, such as the NAACP and the Urban League. But somebody from the community also goes down because they had heard about these people called the Black Panthers in Oakland. And it goes down to Huey and Bobby, tell them what's going on. And Huey and Bobby come up to North Richmond. And um, they kind of just do that grassroots work that you're supposed to do meaning that they go door to door, they talk to community members, they survey them, they figure out uh, what are the clues in this case, right? They find forensic files. They're really trying to figure out, well, how can we approach this situation to get justice for Denzel Dow's family and really to kind of have a ripple effect of stopping police brutality and, and deaths in this community? They go the government route. They talk to the Contra Costa County Sheriff. Uh, they talk to the district attorney to no avail. Once again, this kind of thread that the government neglects these black communities. And uh, the people already know this in this, in this community, but they still go through that process. So then what Huey and the Panthers do, they organize rallies, right? At this time period, North Richmond is very small, right? It has three ways in, three ways out. So it's easy for the police officers to kind of block off the community. Uh, they barely have sidewalks at this time period. North Richmond used to be a swamp. So there's a, a one corner with kind of cement on it. It's in front of a liquor store. And Huey and, and Bobby, they set up shop there. And they start just basically talking like on a soapbox, like Malcolm did in, in Harlem, you know, just saying we must arm ourselves. We cannot rely on the police to protect us because what they do is kill us. And that every single uh, member in this community needs to be armed and defend themselves and their family. And it's a very simple message, but it has a profound effect because this community has been terrorized for so many years. You know, for somebody to really stand up and say, we're going to have to hold guns and, and protect ourselves against a police force that is backed by the government, that's a huge statement. And the kind of way that they rallied everybody, you know, the community members then would come out in, in secondary rallies, the community members would come out with their own guns. And I think that's important to think about is that Huey and Bobby didn't go around to the gun shops and then buy guns and then give them to community members. These people already had guns. These are people from the South, from the Deep South. These people that always had guns. Black people have always carried. It's not about whether or not they carried. It's about how you organize that kind of uh, rage and that, and that power and that knowledge of how to use a, a weapon, you know, legally. With that case, you know, Denzel Dow never gets justice, but um, the police officers become aware that they can't mess with that community in the same way they once did. And that, and when I say once did, that means police brutality. That means just killing unarmed black people. And that also means walking into people's homes without warrants. So it sounds like there was a pretty big impact then. Right. And the reason I say this was more important than Sacramento is because <laughs> It shows what the Panthers were actually about, right? It shows that they do stuff on very small community levels. 
And I think people forget that because of how fast they exploded after the Sacramento incident. All of a sudden, they get nationwide attention. But where it really mattered, right, the communities that really started to change or started feeling uh, empowered were on these very small-scale things, like what's going on in North Richmond. That Proving that that's, that could actually happen in that small community so that it could happen in other communities that are often on the periphery of our society. When you're at a Black Lives Matter protest in Oakland, you're definitely going to hear shout-outs to the Black Panthers. Seeing this new generation of activists looking to the Panthers for inspiration is exciting for Xavier Buck, and he wants to make sure the Newton Foundation does everything it can to keep that connection between generations alive. They've put down a blueprint, they put down the time, they put out publications, and I think Right now, it's just kind of our job to really engage with this history, to deeply understand it, to spend time with it, and uh, honor, you know, these people that kind of put this uh, groundwork down. And I only say that because for me, I see that is the work of the foundation is what we're doing. And so when I say like we're building a monument dedicated to the Black Panther Party, right, not necessarily its leadership, just to the party, their ideals and their services, I, I view these as honoring projects as ways for people to kind of, for the next century, to be able to see something and say, okay, I honor the work that you did, and I'm going to think about how I can incorporate it to my daily life. The Black Panthers Monument isn't here yet. It might take a couple years. But in the meantime, there are murals painted on huge boards of plywood covering windows all over downtown Oakland. A bunch of them honor the party with images of clenched black fists and the iconic Black Panther logo. Another motif you see on a lot of these murals is names. Names like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, and Oscar Grant. At some of the recent rallies, I've even heard people say that they feel like Oscar Grant's killing by a BART police officer in 2009 was essentially what kicked off the Black Lives Matter movement, even though that slogan Black Lives Matter, wasn't popularized until a few years after Oscar's death. Oakland activist Alicia Garza coined the phrase. The reasoning is that Oscar Grant's murder was the beginning of the cell phone camera era. His death was the first viral video of a black man being killed by a police officer that would spread throughout social media, triggering the cycle that we're still in today. A killing followed by outrage, followed by a momentary uprising, and maybe some reforms, again and again and again. Oscar Grant wasn't the start of a whole new movement, but his tragic death was the beginning of a new chapter in a movement that goes back decades. While I was walking around Oakland the other day, reading all the names on all those murals, I couldn't stop thinking about the names that weren't there. Names like Denzel Dowell. Names that were painted on banners calling for justice and chanted at rallies years ago, but are now in danger of being forgotten. The rest of this episode is about two of those names, two men who were killed by the Oakland police in separate incidents many years ago. Because even though the scale of protests is much bigger now, in some ways, 
we've been here before. And understanding the history, the nuances of this cycle, is crucial for those who want to stop it. You're listening to a special collaboration between East Bay Yesterday and the Oakland side. The script for this episode was edited by Oakland side's news editor, Darwin Von Graham. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. My dad was in the army. He was a frontline cook. My mom was a cook. When my dad got out of the army, they opened up a little restaurant in Alameda, California. Um, I come from a family of cooks. My grandma, grandpa, and the restaurant business, they all moved to California uh, around the time I was born in 52. Now you know my age. We all lived in one big old house in East Oakland. That's the voice of Andrea Benavides. Sorry if she sounds a little muffled at times. We were both wearing masks during the interview. We met up a few days before the 44th anniversary of her brother Barlow's death. But before we get into what happened to Barlow, let's hear a bit more about some of the Benavides family's happier days. Here's another sister, Veronica. Her last name is now Salazar, on growing up in East Oakland in the 1960s. Growing up in Oakland is, it's a world in itself. We knew our neighbors. We played tag, baseball, kickball. We went into the creek. I mean, we're free to go wherever we want without any fear. And then as, as I start growing up, I was taking the bus at 5.30 in the morning at 15. I was 15. Still didn't have no fear. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. we're just carefree kids in Oakland. That was our home, Mm -hmm. you know, right smack on 57th Avenue. I was born and raised in that house. On the afternoon of June 11th, 1976, a nightmare started for the Benavides family that in some ways they're still living through. That was the last day that Veronica and Andrea ever saw their older brother Barlow alive. Here's Andrea again. I could take you to that day. Like I said, yeah. he was at Mama's. I was there. Then uh, he left. And then me and my mom went to Grandma's, which was on 39th Ave. And they had the news on TV. No one came to us or gave my mom a call or nothing. The police department, nobody in that authority. Uh, so I told my mom, that's Barlow's car. And we see all that going on. And the cousin that we grew up with seeing what happened and called grandma's because he knew we were at grandma's. And that's how we heard about it. My mom totally went into hysterics. She had a nervous breakdown. Earlier that day, someone robbed a corner store just a few doors down from the house where the Benavides family lived. Barlow and Andrea and Veronica had all been going there for years. They were friendly with the Chinese-American family who owned it. Anyway, the shopkeeper couldn't identify the robber, but he did give the police a description of what he thought was the getaway car, a Chevy. Barlow's car matched the description, and he was pulled over by a rookie Oakland cop named Michael Cogley that same afternoon, a few blocks away. 
as he pulled up to his cousin's apartment building. What happened next is disputed, but here's Andrea's understanding of her brother's final moments. My brother was already parked because he was going to the cousin's and friend's house in the afternoon, and then Cogley gets out of his car and cocks a shotgun, orders my brother out to spread eagle. My brother did everything because he knows how they are. And what the paper is saying, accidental, because why did he even need a cock to shotgun? They didn't say anything that a suspect was armed or anything. Uh, so he cocks a shotgun. This is what my cousin seen too. Cocks a shotgun, puts it to his head while, while he's searching, body searching him. But anyway, he, they're saying that my brother leaned back or something with his hands on the vehicle. And that's when he blew his head off. And that's what my cousin and his best friend seeing. Barlow died instantly. What followed was a quick investigation that never seriously considered whether Officer Cogley should have been punished, let alone charged with homicide. Just four days later, the Oakland Tribune published the results of the OPD investigation under the headline, Shooting is Accidental. After identifying the victim, Barlow, as a robbery suspect, Despite zero evidence linking him to the crime, the article states, quote, Cogley's shotgun discharged and killed Jose Barlow Benavides, 27, as he was being searched following a robbery at the Handy Corner Market, 1801 57th Avenue. Barlow's last name is spelled wrong in the article, by the way. It continues, quote, Homicide Lieutenant Bill Clark said Cogley was holding the loaded shotgun in his right hand as he pat-searched the suspect with his left hand. The suspect, leaning with both hands against the car, then began to turn back towards his right, and his body struck the shotgun muzzle. The gun discharged, and the blast tore through the suspect's head. Before we go any further, I just want to clarify that Barlow Benavides was not black. He was Mexican-American. And I struggled with whether or not to include his story in this episode. But two of the most high-profile killings by Bay Area police in recent weeks were Sean Monterosa and Eric Salgado, both Latinx men. And at Black Lives Matter rallies since then, you see Sean and Eric's names on banners and hear their names in chants. The message I got from seeing that kind of solidarity was that this movement is about calling attention to black lives taken by police and demanding an end to this racist violence. But it's not about excluding or ignoring the lives of others, especially other people of color who are also killed by police. My name is Tony Valladolid. When Barlow was murdered, I was a law student uh, at Berkeley. And uh, coincidentally, I was studying for the bar exam. So the day, uh, and I, I perhaps should back up. Uh, I should tell you that, that Barlow and I had a friendship and a relationship before he was murdered. Uh, Barlow had had some uh, legal issues come up periodically. And uh, he and I developed a friendship. And so he sought me out. 
Tony Valladolid grew up in San Diego. As a student, he became an anti-war activist after both his older brothers were drafted and injured in combat in Vietnam. After college, Tony worked with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union. Then he moved up to Oakland so he could attend law school at UC Berkeley. Back in 1969, a few Chicano students, a couple years ahead of Tony at Cal, started Centro Legal de la Raza to provide low-cost bilingual legal services to what was then the predominantly Mexican-American community in East Oakland's Fruitvale neighborhood. Working at Centro Legal was how Tony got to know Barlow. He was a big guy who was just as gentle, as respectful, and as, as good a person as, as I want to know. I, I, I was drawn to him. You know, we had you know, many, many clients coming through the door, but he, he was special to me. We, we always, you know, big hug, and it was, it was more than a client. Uh, I was uh, in the law library the day that he was murdered, and so I was studying, and I heard some commotion, and I looked over and I saw several people running through the, the library. They'd seen me, and they ran up, and they, and they said, you got to come, you got to come right now. And, and I said, you know, I asked them to <laughs> explain. I said, look, guys, I'm a month away from the bar. I, I, I can't fathom any interruptions. And they said, Barlow's been killed. That's all it took. I grabbed my stuff, ran with them to their cars, and we raced over to the Central Legal in Fruitvale. Um, and I started uh, immediately uh, working, conducting the investigation and what I knew was going to be a, uh, a very, very challenging and difficult uh, experience for the community, for the Benavides family. And uh, I knew that Centro Legal would, would take a primary role in uh, seeking justice for Barlow. One of the other lawyers who worked on this case told me that they met with some Black Panthers who suggested they called the coalition they were building, the Barlow Benavides Committee Against Police Crimes. Besides the legal team in the coalition, there were also people focused on fundraising and others who organized big rallies and painted banners and abuelas who supplied food for these gatherings. Everyone from Berkeley High Kids to Brown Berets got involved with the Barlow Benavides Committee Against Police Crimes. But the family, the Benavides family, was always front and center. Can you tell me a little bit about your role in the committee, in the campaign? My role was this. I became, we, the whole family on the front lines. And that was my role, can to you speak. Can you describe what we're looking at? Right here is a picture of me and the t-shirts I've designed. And uh, that's a picture of me in front of a microphone and the t-shirt uh, says Barlow fue asesinado, which means Barlow was assassinated. The t-shirt is white with red paint. And uh, I believe this probably was at City Hall. And then I had one where- Oh, can you describe this one too? Oh, this one, it's the banner where all the siblings, this is the cousin that saw my brother. That's the cousin, this the youngest ones here. That's me there, my oldest brother. We made all these banners. Can you, can you read what the banner says? The banner says, Bardo Benavides, March 1949, June 11, 1976, is murdered by OPD. 
and some of the signs they say justice for Barlow, jail Michael now, Michael Cogley now, El Pueblo Unido. I'm sure we probably have caravan of people, uh, people in vehicles, people coming out of their homes. The community, they supported us through the, every event, every fundraiser. One of the reasons why the Justice for Barlow campaign was able to grow so big, so fast, was because Fruitvale was a major hub of community activism. Low-income health clinics and underground newspapers and artist collectives and all kinds of other grassroots organizations were thriving during this era. Some of them, like Centro Legal, are still around to this day. And a lot of this community organizing was actually in response to an even earlier police killing of another young Chicano man, Charles Pinky DeBaca, who was shot by an OPD officer back in 1968. Plus, it wasn't just East Oaklanders pushing for police accountability. The Benavides family also connected with and sometimes co-hosted events with the family members of other men who had been killed by police. People like Danny Trevino, who was killed by San Jose police in 1976, and Tyrone Guyton, who wasn't even a man yet, he was just a 14-year-old boy, a 14-year-old black boy, when he was shot to death by Emeryville cops in 1973. So many families who lost loved ones to police violence supported each other in mourning and organizing. Yeah, what was it like to give stand up and give speeches in front of such a big crowd back then? Like that must this, have been nervous. Well, like I said, I had my comrades with me and they stood by me. It was like they were protecting me because I would be so afraid. I would have nightmares, especially if I spoke at a park at a rally. I would get so ner I would be so scared that there are undercover cops out there. Somebody's going to shoot me or something. I always feared that. This might sound overblown, but Andrea's fear of retaliation wasn't just paranoia. Here's what allegedly happened to Barlow's cousin and his friends, who'd witnessed his murder from their apartment window. Again, Tony Valladolid, the lawyer from Central Legal. My understanding is that shortly after the murder, uh, Barlow's murder at night, a number of uh, Oakland police officers, uniformed officers, went essentially storming the uh, the apartment upstairs, pulled out two or three of the young men that were there and spread eagled against the wall. And a gun was placed close in close proximity to these individuals that were up against the wall and it was dry fired. It wasn't a, there wasn't a round in the chamber, but the hammer was pulled back and it was dry fired and that a statement was made to the effect that this is what we do to people that fuck with us. Don't do it. And, and uh, by, by saying don't do it, they meant don't testify against us in court. Yes, that was it. I mean, there was no other reason to intimidate and, and, and threaten and terrorize these witnesses. And, and it was, again, my understanding that adults were present, that the mother and or grandmother were, were present, that, that witness some of this. One of the reasons why the OPD might have been acting so hostile was because the Justice for Barlow protests were working. 
All the pressure from the community convinced the Alameda County District Attorney to bring the case to a grand jury to consider pressing charges against Cogley. So it makes sense that when Andrea became the face of the committee, she became a target. Here's just one example of what she had to deal with. They stopped us, and I told my sister and brother, don't say nothing, just let me do all the talking. Don't say nothing. It was two white cops, and so I give him my license, and he goes, oh, Benavides, huh? Like that. And I go, yes, step out the car. So we step out, little old car, puts my brother and my sister against this fence to spread eagle. Um, they had me standing at the car. And here's the other officer tearing up the back seats, tearing up the car. Yeah, and he keeps saying, where is it, where is it? And we're saying, what? So where's the drugs? So they have, like, suspect we got drugs. So the other officer that's in front of me, I remember to this day, he trying to frisk me, and I said, wait, I know my rights. I was already schooled by the community. I said, you can't search me. You need to bring a matron out here, a policewoman. You can't touch my sister either. And they're minors. And so he makes a call. Here comes the woman police. So they have her frisk me. And then my poor sister, and then she, they're crying and crying. I'm still saying, well, what am I getting stopped for? He got his belly club and broke the back light. And he says, well, I stopped you for a broken brake light. As the rallies for justice continued, so did the harassment. Here's Andrea's sister, Veronica Salazar, again. My younger sister, Rosie, they pulled her over because she was riding a bike that didn't have a license tag, you know, a tag. I don't even know if people license their bikes anymore, but um, they didn't have a tag on it, and they took her bike away. They impounded the bike. Tony told me that it felt like they were at war with the police. And the scariest thing was that the cops could get away with whatever they wanted. One day, the central legal office was broken into, and Tony's notes and interview transcripts from the investigation mysteriously disappeared. When we were burglarized, the only thing taken was the file in my locked file cabinet in my desk. That was the only thing. The office was completely trashed, but no typewriters, no nothing of value. We did. We were what you might consider poverty law. So, so mm-hmm. we had we didn't have much, but we had you know a lot of posters on the walls and and, and pictures and stuff. And all of those were pulled down, thrown about, uh, desks were overturned, and stuff like that. But that was the only thing taken. Mm. The only thing taken was that file. So. Um, to say the least, suspicious. Yeah, a lot of lawyers connected with Centro were, were there that day and involved uh, with our reaction to that. But, yeah. you know, it was it was so obviously, I mean, the, the police that came to take fingerprints, yeah, they, they just mocked us at every turn. They laughed. They, there were different practices. I, I don't know if you've heard that they would, pra- they would park a uh, police car against our back door so close that we couldn't open the door and, and you know if you know the the old wolf building it was kind of like a train flat right so you st- you came in the front and you go into the back well if you parked in the back you had to walk an entire city block 
to get into the front. Well, they would park a car there. And of course, we'd call a tow truck and they would come laugh and leave. And they would just leave the car parked there. If you think all this sounds unlikely, it wasn't the only time OPD was accused of breaking into offices and messing with attorneys and investigators who were trying to hold cops accountable. More on that later. Also, sometimes the intimidation was even more violent, like when officers fired live rounds at the Black Panthers' headquarters, or the time they pulled guns on Tony Valladolid. I don't know about others, but I know that I got hot stopped in Jingletown late at night, and, and I know that it was a direct result of that. You know, it was like place down, face down uh, on the ground, and, uh, you know, guns drawn, stuff like that. So, um, it was uh, a real siege mentality that they had. The primary goal of the Barlow Benavides Committee Against Police Crimes was to get Officer Michael Cogley prosecuted for murder. After all the rallies and marches and investigations, here's what happened. We didn't get the kind of justice we sought with the local authorities, not with the DA's office, not with uh, anyone. Uh, we also pushed very strongly, in fact, went back to Washington to try to convince Drew Day, who was the, uh, the head of the uh, Justice Department at the time, to initiate an investigation, which they did. But I can tell you, in no uncertain terms, it was an absolute sham what they did. They never spoke to us. The, the, the information I was able to garner was that they had just done the most superficial investigation and then And this was like uh, from the, a team from the DOJ, Department of Justice? Uh, yes. Or, okay. Yes. And but, you were saying that they exonerated? It was, it was the Office of Civil Rights, Department of Justice, uh, out of Washington. And they... they they, com- they walked away. They said, they said, there are no crimes here. Even though the committee had high-profile allies, like Congressman Ron Dellums, supporting them, Michael Cogley was never charged with a crime. Nobody I talked to thinks he was even reprimanded by the department. I tried to reach Michael Cogley to verify these details, but was unable. Anyway, the Benavides family brought in a different lawyer for the civil suit, which was settled out of court. In other words, Oakland taxpayers picked up the tab. After that, Andrea's parents sold their house and left Oakland forever. I think, like, especially after my brother's killing and like being out there in the forefront, I know not only myself, but family members, we were always leery. We never went anywhere alone after that because of the harassment. Uh, where we're always together. You were worried about the police? Yes, always worried about the police. Veronica told me that every June, in the days leading up to the anniversary of her brother's death, she feels anger and sadness bubbling back up inside her. But just because the committee didn't succeed in getting justice for Barlow doesn't mean it was a failure. It helped push a movement forward. And the impact of that legacy continues to ripple through the streets, especially on the many murals that celebrate black and brown solidarity. It galvanized the community. It, it created 
a very, very strong network of good people, very talented people who are very, very concerned with changing not only police practices, but, but all other forms of, of sort of social justice issues that confronted the Fruitvale. So, so perhaps not only because of Barlow, but Barlow, Barlow and, and the organizing that went around uh, his murder and trying to get justice for Barlow coalesced a lot of a lot of the different organizations that perhaps hadn't been working together as strongly uh, came together because I think before before Barlow's case, everyone did the best that they could, but politically there were strong divisions. Barlow's case provided an opportunity for really strong networks and coalitions to be built. And that didn't go away. During the 50s, Oakland became a stagnant, seething ghetto of impoverished blacks and Chicanos, surrounded by the white affluence of the Oakland Hills and suburban Alameda County. To contain the misery and violence of the ghetto, Oakland's all-white police department earned a reputation for head-knocking brutality that has left a well-remembered legacy of bitterness in the minds and hearts of many who lived in that time and place. I was growing up uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, at that time, the police department was perceived as brutal. And for the most part, there was extreme fear on the part of black people in West Oakland at that time when the police would ever come into the community. That clip is from a documentary called The People and the Police, Oakland. It was produced in 1974 by Cron TV. The voice that you heard after the narrator, the man talking about how black people in West Oakland lived in terror of police, that was Congressman Ron Dellums. Dellums later went on to become Oakland's mayor. Anyway, this short film is focused on OPD's efforts to reform itself and build trust in the black community. I joined the department in about 1965. It was very different from what it is now. I think we were uh, a lot more aggressive then. I don't much care for the word harassment. I'd say uh, there was a time we were a head-knocking department, yeah. Today, there is a whole new relationship developing between the people of Oakland's ghettos and the police. Police officials hold regular meetings in the community, and they are well-received. I would say that there's been some uh, tremendous change on the part of the police. I think they're moving away from the, the head-knocking, uh, brutal, physical approach and uh, trying to be uh, more public relations-oriented, more community relations-oriented, and hopefully more sensitive and liberal in their approach to... Uh, modern law enforcement. That last voice you heard was Ron Dellums again. Unfortunately, his optimism about these reforms wouldn't last long. I recently spoke with Brenda Payton about OPD misconduct in the late 70s and early 80s. Brenda retired a few years ago, but she was a journalist for more than four decades and spent many of those years at the Oakland Tribune. Back in 81, you wrote an article called Police Use of Deadly Force in Oakland, uh, which was published in The Black Scholar. So can you tell me about why you wrote that article? What inspired you to research that topic? Well, I guess just because Oakland had, in 1979, gone through a really terrible year where police killed nine black men including uh, the 15-year-old uh, Melvin Black that I think 
probably became the most um, controversial, I guess, or most protested of the nine, at least in my memory. And so the issue of deadly force and how it interplays with race at that time in Oakland was just very much a major issue as it is still today. The case Brenda just mentioned, Melvin Black, ended up being a big deal. Melvin was a 15-year-old boy living in the projects at the end of 53rd Street. His building was nestled up against the embankment of Highway 24, also known as the Grove Shafter Freeway. The police said that they were responding to reports of a sniper shooting at cars when they came across Melvin holding a weapon at the end of a dark cul-de-sac. The weapon found at the scene ended up being a pellet gun. But the question of whether Melvin was actually holding that pellet gun when the police opened fire ended up fueling a raging controversy. Six months after Melvin Black's death, Brenda wrote a front-page story for the San Francisco Examiner about the case under the headline, Cops' Judgment Questioned in Youth's Death. Just like the community had done after Barlow Benavides was killed, activists again created a coalition, this time called the Melvin Black Human Rights Committee. They protested in front of City Hall and demanded the officers who killed Melvin be fired and prosecuted for murder. They also demanded the creation of what they called the People's Police Review Board. So the police officers claimed that he pointed a gun at them, and there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that he didn't, and that he was probably trying to comply with them. But um, as one of the, I guess it was an independent investigation, suggested that they gave him contradictory orders, and he probably didn't react fast enough, or they interpreted him putting the gun down as somehow threatening. And I think that was the what made the you know public outrage about that his age, and that the police were clearly not telling the truth. The person who conducted the independent investigation that Brenda just mentioned was an attorney named John Burris. John Burris was born in Vallejo in 1945, and in his many years as a lawyer. He's represented hundreds of clients in police abuse cases. He successfully won settlements against the OPD for Tupac Shakur and the family of Oscar Grant, and against the LAPD for Rodney King. But back in the 1970s, he was another idealistic young lawyer. He'd been profoundly influenced by watching the Black Panthers give speeches on Berkeley's campus while he was in law school. But he also felt that the best way to change the system was from within. After passing the bar, he left the East Bay for Chicago to work for the state's attorney's office for a few years. When he came back to work as an assistant DA in Alameda County, Oakland was in the midst of a major transition. The political climate had changed. Uh, now had the more uh, African-Americans involved in the political processes. The mayor was Lionel Wilson during that period. Uh, but there were issues around the police. And I, I think that there was tension in the air with the police. Uh, this was coming off of the Black Panther period. 
And so um, uh, the police, uh, I thought, were somewhat trigger-happy during that period of time. After decades of pushing for more political power, Oakland's black community was finally seeing some major victories during this era. Lionel Wilson became the town's first black mayor in 1977, and the rest of City Hall was diversifying too. But there was still one significant institution that seemed stuck back in the days when whites controlled Oakland almost exclusively, the police department. In her 1981 report, Brenda Payton notes that even as Oakland's black population hit an all-time high of nearly 50%, in other words, Oakland was almost half black, less than 20% of cops were African American, and white officers held nearly all the commanding positions. This is the backdrop to that tension that John Burris remembers. This is why Oakland was ready to explode after the killing of Melvin Black and all the other black men who'd been shot by cops that year. And this is why city council appointed John Burris as the independent investigator to look into Melvin's death. But did the politicians really want the truth? Or did they just want to look like they were doing something? Here's John Burris. People were really upset. I mean, upset like they are now when shootings take place on a questionable circumstance. And so it was, it was, it was an explosive point. The city council uh, was being um, yelled at and talked about and a whole lot was going on around it. And, and the mayor was trying to find a way to sort of quiet the situation down or at least get some perspective on it. And so the city council decided to have an independent investigation of all of this. And, and I was selected to conduct this investigation. There was a sense that you wanted to have an outside person to look at this because it was uh, so explosive and there was a lot of distrust of the police. And to some extent, I think the city wanted to at least wash its hands of having to be involved in the final outcome of what happened. In John Burris's book, Blue Versus Black, he speculates that he might have been chosen because of his history in the DA's office. Quote, Perhaps I had mistaken the unspoken mandate of the investigation, and they hadn't expected such a harsh verdict from a former prosecutor who'd worked hand-in-hand -hand with the cops all those years. In other words, city leaders may have thought Burris would bury the truth and help hush up the protesters. So what was that harsh verdict that Burris reached? Here's another quote from his book. In the end, we were left with the troubling realization that the physical evidence did not match the officer's statements. The events simply could not have happened the way they had been reported. Burris's report was not well received. City Council worried it would open up Oakland to financial liability in a lawsuit, which it eventually did. And Brenda Payton told me that she thinks that Mayor Wilson was scared about how the police would react. According to her, the last thing Wilson wanted was a high-profile political battle with the OPD. At first, the report wasn't even released publicly. It was buried. But Brenda got a leaked copy which is how Burris's findings came to make front page news. 
In the end, the officers who killed Melvin Black, their names were Forrest Kenneth Thornberry and Glenn Tomek, were never disciplined. And just like with the Benavides family, OPD officers were accused of harassing Black's family members. Melvin Black's older brother, Lawrence McKinney, said that a few days before a city council hearing about the shooting, he was stopped by officers in a grocery store and nearly arrested for causing a, quote, disturbance. It doesn't stop there. The officers who killed Melvin, Thornberry and Tomek, along with two other officers, tried to silence their critics by filing a libel lawsuit against the NAACP because the group's leaders had called the shooting a murder. OPD officers were even accused of improperly raiding the NAACP's offices. The eventual outcome of this traumatic ordeal was that Melvin Black's family was awarded $693,000 in a civil suit. I was told by a former neighbor that they moved away after that. I wasn't able to track them down for an interview. John Burris thought he'd been doing the right thing by digging up the truth about Melvin Black's death. But many in the upper ranks of Oakland's power structure were furious at him. OPD accused Burris of mishandling confidential police reports and improperly providing them to federal prosecutors. It was a painful and pivotal moment in the young lawyer's career. So that taught me a lesson, a real lesson. Uh, and that lesson is that the police are not interested in the truth. But the, the police are interested in covering themselves and making sure that the general population, the white population, does not lose confidence in them. You know, to the extent they're doing what they're doing in the black community, it has to be perceived that it was done in a, in a fair and objective way, as opposed to biased policing or poor judgment policing. And that was a real lesson I learned, and it certainly carried me forward all these years, because it's a, it's a, I view it as a, as a foundational piece in dealing with the police, that they're not interested in the truth. I mean, they're interested in the cover-up, you know, uh, to place themselves in the most positive light. You know, look at the general population, the population that, that they care about. They don't care about the black community. They don't care about that. For many in Oakland, the Melvin Black case proved, once again, that the police would never willingly hold themselves accountable. People, people like Barlow Benavides' family, had been demanding some kind of civilian oversight for years. Finally, in the wake of a blood-soaked 1979, Oakland established its first civilian police review board. At the very least, John Burris hoped this would give victims of police misconduct an outlet for some kind of catharsis. Now, I thought that in the early stages, there was the opportunity for effectiveness. And the big issue was, more than anything else, it gave a citizen, a complaining person, an opportunity to tell this story and to confront the police officer. Because many times that doesn't happen. You file a complaint with internal affairs, and, and it's never heard or seen again. Brenda Payton feels a bit differently about the board. I know one outcome of the, the Melvin Black case 
was the establishment of the Citizens Police Review Board that you talk a little bit about in the piece. Is there anything you can tell me about, like, what the uh, eventual impact of that board was? Obviously, the purpose of it was to kind of have some kind of reforming effect on the OPD. Do you know if that was ever accomplished? Not not through that board. And, the, and they had very limited power. Um, it was It was pretty much a public relations move, I would say to appease the community, but it, it, didn't, it was not set up to have real power. In her 1981 report, Peyton wrote, the board has severe limitations. It does not have subpoena power. It cannot review police department policy, and it was prohibited from looking at any of the nine killings in 1979. Whatever meager power the board did have was eventually hobbled by police union pushback. Just a few years ago, it was disbanded entirely and replaced by an oversight commission with more teeth. But that's a whole different story, and not really what this episode is about. The reason I'm even bringing up the board is because I think it's a useful example of how in moments when the police are under great scrutiny, reforms that look good on paper often fail to live up to their promise. Rather than any specific policy, Burris and Peyton both see two major impediments to lasting change. Number one, police unions, which tend to resist even the mildest reforms. And number two is something that's kind of hard to define, but can be summed up with the words police culture. I think anybody who's been watching the videos of cops in riot gear attacking protesters at Black Lives Matter rallies lately understands what I mean by police culture. And speaking of those protests, both Burris and Peyton have been watching them closely, and they're both feeling cautiously hopeful that after seeing the devastating cycle of police violence repeat itself over and over again for so many years, that maybe, maybe something will really change this time for good. Now it maybe feels like something has shifted in terms of the you know, general consciousness. I mean, I you know, was a child of the 60s. I did, I've never seen anything like these demonstrations. Yeah, can you tell me about that a little bit? Like, what are you, how are you feeling seeing, looking, turning on the news and seeing coast to coast Black yeah. Lives Matter protests in big cities, small towns, you name it? Right. And internationally, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a part of me and my husband and I have been saying, wow, this really is feeling different. Um, he, we live in Pinole now, and he was coming home the other day, and there was a Latino family, young family husband and wife and their two young kids, you know, kind of on a major intersection uh, with the sign Black Lives Matter, Familia for Black Lives. And it's like, wow. Yeah. But once you see this stuff, you can't pretend that you didn't see it. Mm. So that's the question, you know, will, are people now seeing things that they can't just say, oh, well, that was a nice demonstration, but I got to get back to business as usual. Run, 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 
Since the inception of the Action Review Panel and other self-study techniques, there has been a dramatic drop in the number of conflicts between the police and the people of Oakland. Resistance to arrest and assaults on police officers dropped as much as 30% in a single year, while citizen complaints against police officers have been cut in half. But policemen are traditionalists. Many still admire the ideal of the super cop, the tough, resourceful, and courageous lawman who always catches the crook. And some of Oakland's finest are still uncomfortable with their department's new style and philosophy. I could just end this episode here, but there's one more story I really want you to hear. So stay with me a little bit longer, okay? All right. On the night of May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a black man, died after a white Minneapolis cop kneeled on his neck for almost nine minutes. In the following days and weeks, the United States saw more protests, and in some cases civil unrest, than it had in decades. Dozens of marches and rallies have erupted throughout Oakland and the rest of the East Bay and are continuing to happen consistently as of the taping of this podcast. In the midst of this national reckoning, Mayor Libby Schaff held a virtual meeting on the night of June 11th to discuss the intertwined issues of structural racism and policing. One of the speakers was Lieutenant Fred Shavies, a black officer who was born and raised in Oakland and leads the department's race equity group. At the end of the meeting, these were Lieutenant Shavey's closing remarks. There are some training that we do that hasn't changed from the 70s, which is just not okay. Um, and so talking about the how policing has, has, has evolved from slave catching to, to, to reconstruction policing, to Jim Crow policing, to civil rights era policing, all the way up, and so we think about. Uh, there are some folks who I think someone on maybe the mayor talked about uh, the things that have occurred over the last 30 years. But I would again, I would argue that it's been 400 years, and a lot of things have not changed. And so we have to continue to to try. Like we have to continue to try to train folks. And if we cease to try, nothing will get better. And so I think we have to continue keeping our eye on the goal and working toward progress. And again, uh, I'm hopeful like Chief Cespedes and others, that that this momentum will continue. But to say, let's give up and let's don't do it anymore would be quitting in a sense, and I disagree with that. Listening to these words, I just kept thinking, what if things don't really change? What if we're still stuck in the cycle? It's just bigger and louder this time. But then I started thinking about the dozens, maybe hundreds of videos I'd watched just that week showing young people, many of whom were probably at their first protest, getting beaten and pepper sprayed and shot with rubber bullets by police. And you know what? I don't think those kids are going to let things go back to quote-unquote normal again. Why do I think that? Because witnessing all the brutality reminded me of a story I heard from Tony Viodolid. Remember, he was the lawyer from Central Legal who worked on the Barlow Benavides Committee. At the very end of our interview, Tony told me what motivated him 
to devote so much of his career to challenging police abuse. And I'm going to warn you, especially if you're listening with kids present, this story is upsetting and there are some curse words. But I want to share it because I think it captures how a lot of people are feeling about the police right now, especially those who have been out in the streets shedding blood and tears. Tony, you don't have to answer this one if you don't want to, but I'm wondering if you can tell me what happened when you were 13. Uh, okay. I mean, I'll tell you, um, it's, uh, you know, it, uh, I was, um, running home, having played basketball. I, I, I was such a good kid. I tell you, it was, it was about 10 minutes to 10. Uh, and I'm sprinting home because, uh, because I did not want to violate curfew. And by the way, uh, I was an altar boy. So I was scheduled to do mass at, at six o'clock following morning. So, uh, so anyway, I heard a, a roar, an engine, and a SDPD, and uh, they ran up on the on the sidewalk and cut me off. And I, I, I somewhat bumped into it, but I didn't fall down, you know. And I jumped back, and you know. So then, anyway, they cuffed me and uh, put me in the back and uh, in the back of the car, and um, they said that. I had committed a burglary, and so they drove me not to one, but to four different places. Uh, in one, the first one was North Park, and I just kept getting further and further away. And finally, I was in Hillcrest, and they kept doing um, curbside show-ups. So they would, you know, cuff, stand me there, and people who I guess had called in a hot prowl or, or whatever burglary, they would ask them to identify me. And, and no one did. And I remember the last time, I, I, it was probably around midnight, and uh, there were two cops, both of them white, both of them very big. And uh, and I probably weighed, I'm sure I weighed less than 100 pounds. So anyway, an older, an elderly white couple was called by them. I guess they'd called in a hot prowler or something. And they walked up to me, and they looked at me, and they just started browbeating the officers. What do you guys think you're doing? This young man should be home with his family. What are you, what dare you? And on and on and on. And these cops go, oh shit. I guess we've, we've kind of played this one out as far as we can. Put me back in the car, started driving me home. And the, and the passenger, the guy in the passenger seat, basically just, he started, he was very profane with me. He said, you, you know, you're fucking little, you know, you beaner and this and that. And he said, uh, you're probably going to get away with this one, but how often do you burglarize? And, you know, I was a very, you know, respectful of authority, so on and so forth. Um, but I also, you know, I knew how to be profane. And I, and I lost it, and I cussed him out. And uh, he told a guy, was, this is, I'll, I'll bring you up to date. I just, the biggest mass demonstration that we've had in San Diego in a long time went right underneath the university slash Park Boulevard bridge. Well, that was exactly where this happened. So they pulled over. There's a, there's a ramp, a street that goes up to the top. So it's very isolated. You know, it's a residential area. And they, the guy told and the guy, the passenger said, pull over. He, I was handcuffed behind my back. So he grabbed me by the handcuffs and mind you, I was less than a hundred pounds. So he could lift me and he, 
first he slapped me like three times, just bam, bam, bam. He's smart ass. You know, you think you've got a smart knock and he gets slapping me. So then the guy pulls over and he pulls me out of the car, carried me to the back of the car and held me about three feet off the ground again, you know, by the cuffs. So my hands are, you know, my, my arms are bent up towards my you know, shoulder blades and he dropped me the first time, you know, I, I wasn't ready for it. So I hit my face and then did it a couple more times. And, uh, I was turning by then. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't as extreme. And then the other cop had enough and he said, that's enough. You know, just stop this shit and uncuffed me and said, get on home. And so I went home and, uh, uh, <laughs> to say the least, it changed me. It, it changed me. I developed uh, a, a passionate uh, dislike for for bad. You need to understand something. I have family members that are uh, police officers, and I have the greatest respect for them. And I have many, many friends over my professional career that I have made who are law enforcement. So I don't indict them all, but I know that that racist, malicious, mean individual is there. And so we have to get rid of them. We have to make law enforcement something that does truly protect and serve all people. And so I'm sure I internalized a lot of that. It's why I... I, I Eventually, when I the last thing I did in my professional career was was uh, some wrongful death cases against police that were uh, um, that were killing uh, Mexicans on the border. Uh, it was the San Diego Border Crimes Task Force, and uh, and so a lot of cases were litigated, and I I was involved uh, yeah. with those cases, and uh, because I guess part in, in no small part motivated both by my own personal experience and then, uh, you know, what I became uh, involved with in Barlow's case. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Thanks to Darwin Bon Graham for editing the script of this episode, and also the rest of the team at the Oakland Side. To see photos related to this story, go to oaklandside.org, and don't forget to sign up for their newsletter while you're there. I also want to thank Damian McDuffie, Victor Ochoa, Annette Oropesa, Rebecca Salisbury, and everyone who contributes to the Oakland Wiki. Also, huge, huge shout out to all of you supporting this show on Patreon. East Bay Yesterday wouldn't be able to survive without your donations. So thank you very much for keeping the show alive. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I would really, really love to reach more people with this episode, with this story. So if you could help me out by sharing it, I'd really appreciate it. And uh, tag me if you do. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, you know, all the major podcast apps. And again, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and a review. Helps a lot. 
Uh, music for this episode came from Martin Fowler. Uh, he donated this music very generously. And you can find more of his work at martindfowler.com. The theme song music came from Anatech. This last little gem I'm going to leave you with is called Hey, You Old Oakland Town. And it's performed by Dave Alexander. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. Hey, you, Mr. Police. You better heed the people warning cause the handwriting is on the wall. Hey, you, Mr. Police Chief. He's the people wanting cause the handwriting is on the wall. So have fun while you can. Just like the wall of Jericho, your bowels will fall.